0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Um, We're going to be doing the transvaluation of all values. Can West Africa save us? That's the topic tonight. Um, But first, the paid promotional part of our uh, evening. Um, As you'll see in the handout, I'm doing a class this summer in the garden. Um, And uh, I should say thank you to the people who've already signed up. Uh, The class has been uh, advertised online on my website for a couple of days and so people have signed up. And I've also gotten some questions from online and so I thought it'd be good to take just a moment to explain the idea of the class, which is uh, often when maybe we're in college when we were maybe in a band, or we're hanging out with theater people, or we were just with a group of creative, interesting people, and we have that sort of sense of the golden hours, of the magic light, of the beauty of thought, and art, and intellect. And then at some point, the world intervenes. Uh, (laughs) And that fades, or we lose it, or it seems to go away somehow. Uh, And the goal of the class, called the Life Philosophical, is to sort of help make it possible for that idea, that feeling, that sense, that world that you can inhabit uh, to be created again in your own mind, your own life, your own day-to-day existence. To return to, you know, Fond de Siaqla, Vienna, or Enlightenment, Paris, or Isfahan during the Safavids. These magic moments in history never go away. They always continue to exist, but we go away. There's a certain force in the world that makes us, that works against keeping those kinds of ideas and moments and feelings alive, I would argue. Um, and so it's important to learn how to sort of keep it, feed it, and maintain that sort of glowing sense of of creativity and joy and beauty that really make life valuable. So that's the simple idea of a class. How hard could that be to pull off? But anyway, that's the idea of the class. It's over three days with food and catering and flowers and beauty and joy and all that fun stuff. So if you're interested, um, you can check it out online. There's more details and stuff at, the, at my website. Plus, all my lectures are up there now also, by the way. So I redid the website. It's just Um So there's more information. The flyers from old lectures and whatnot. Um, I'm trying to catch up on all that kind of bookkeeping that I'm terrible at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so transvaluation of all values. Can West Africa save us? Now, where we started from is the notion that our values shape the world. This is key. Where do we get our values from? From our societies, from our cultures, from our civilizations. It seems obvious. It's true. It's just simple. But the influence this has on us is so profoundly deep, it's hard for us to sort of work our way out of it. The only reason we want to work our ways out of it is when we feel that things are not going that well. Um, again, when at the beginning of this series, I said the transvaluation of all values, we, I think most of us can feel that the old values, the old ways are beginning to fade. They don't work as well as they should. Um, it, it's not something I'm saying we should do. It's something I'm saying is happening, and we should think about it, because I think everyone can kind of feel the change in many different ways, in many different places. But that change is, is hard and it's deep-seated, hard to get your hands on it. And the example I like to give is whatever country you're born in, you'll have a native language. You'll be raised with that language. If you're in a bilingual family, maybe you have two native languages that are spoken in your home. For most of us, that native language will be English, but it doesn't matter what the language is. Now, you can learn a second language, a third language, a fourth language. You can become perfectly fluent <coughs> in other languages. This is not a problem. Lots of people do it. The trick with values, though, the things that come from our culture, is try this. Unlearn your native language. Don't know English anymore. I don't think it can be done. There's no... You, see, you... You, we, it's already there, and it's, you just can't get rid of it. Even if you move away and never speak English for the rest of your life, for a year, 10 years, a decade, it doesn't matter. That language that you're raised with will still be there. And you can't unlearn it. That's the power of culture, that's the power of the source of our values. And so when we start working against our values, trying to examine them, rethink them, ah, oh, it's really hard, because we're working down at this incredibly basic level. And I talked about, on the first lecture, the, the book Albion's Seed, and, and I've given you the outline here uh, that he lays down. He calls it folkways, which is just another way of saying culture. <laughs> he says the folkways are the ways that influence your day-to-day existence in every subtle and not subtle ways. And he just lists it. He says, speech, both the language you speak, how you speak, family, family structure, family organizations, marriage, gender ideas, sex ideas, child-rearing ideas, naming conventions, how you deal with aging, how you deal with death, religion, magic, learning, food, dress, sports, work, time, wealth, rank, social order, power, freedom, and more. All of these are shaped by influence by your cultural background and you get them fast, young, early, two, three, four, five. These patterns are laid down and they will be with you for the rest of your life. You can't unlearn them. You can learn to surpass them, work around them. You can actively overcome them but they'll still be there. The foods that you eat when you're six that you love are hard to learn to unlove. (laughs) You may have encountered this. It doesn't seem to matter how much certain foods. Just get in there, and they're there. And think of how culturally specific, not just what you eat, but how what you eat is prepared. So one of the examples that he gives that I love in the book Albion Seed is whether you roast things or fry them. And this is just, it's the same food. Do you take a pie with a crust and bake it? Or do you deep fry it? It's not a wrong answer here, right? It's all beautiful and lovely no matter what you do. But, it, but if, if you're raised one way, you're probably going to prefer that way. The rest like, oh, that's a fine pie, but it's not fried pie. <laughs> or this is, this is good, but why did you fry it, right? I mean, it's the same, you know, it's, it's, it's those deep resonances. Uh, As he points out, this is very American specific, but applies to other countries, of course, in Albion Seed, he makes the argument that four groups of original settlers came over from England to begin populating the the, the America, well, the the colonies, and that the patterns of our lives today, political, economic, regional, linguistic, were laid down by those four groups where they came from, and the backgrounds that they had. And this book won all the awards, and it's an incredibly convincing work, brilliantly researched, wonderfully argued, um, exhaustively detailed, so it's not a quick read. Uh, The only argument quibble I have with it is he forgot one group, and that group were the slaves that were brought over from West Africa. If you look on the back of the little handout there, there's a population of uh, Africans in America for, by year. 1790 was the first census year. So, but they, they, they already African Americans are here, of course. So, if you look at it in 1790, 20 percent of the population of the United States was, was African, African-American. <laughs> and it stays 20 percent 18, 17, 16, starts to fall a little bit about the time of the Civil War. And it goes from 700-ish, 800,000 around 1790, up to 5 million in 1870. This is not an inconsiderable percentage of the population. In fact, it's probably a larger percentage of the population than any of the other four groups that he talks about. It's probably the single largest coherent group that ever settled the Americas. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, is the fifth group. There's also a sixth group, by the way, which would be the Native Americans. We'll also talk about them a little bit. But tonight, and probably next time, this is probably going to take two times to cover, I want to talk about this. This is a hugely significant aspect of American cultural history, in fact, world cultural history. But to get to this, we have to go back to the other four groups, Western European cultural heritage the sort of standard background. Now some of these people are Catholic who come over, some of them are Protestant, but they come from a tradition that goes back 10,000 years. We are the inheritors of the agricultural revolution. Our cultural foundations are so incredibly influenced by the amazing explosion of, of human possibility that was brought about by the agricultural revolution, give or take 10,000 years ago, that we forget. We no longer remember that this is who we are. But here's a few aspects of our culture that were informed by that. Cities. The tricky thing about cities is that they have a lot of people in them, right? You may have noticed this. You don't have people glommed together in groups, you don't have cities. How do you feed them? The only way you can feed people in cities is if you have some source of surplus food. You can get enough food into a city so that people who aren't actually doing anything to produce food don't starve to death. This is called the agricultural revolution. We just take it for granted that this is how it's been. Actually, for most of human history, or prehistory actually, this was not the way it was. It was a revolution. You couldn't have cities. It was hard to get large collections of people together for long periods of time, because you just couldn't feed them. Large groups of people equaled starvation. You don't know how to store food, and you couldn't produce a lot of excess. so if you look at a chart of the world population, I thought of putting on there, but it ran out of room. Uh, The world population is incredibly slow-growing until you hit the agricultural revolution, and then it just picks up a little bit. It doesn't pick up that fast because it takes a long time for the agricultural revolution to spread. As it spreads, you get the same patterns one key element of it is the city we're used to the idea of cities by the way in the ancient world port towns a small city tenish thousand people would have been a very large city this would be a considerable place now we have the you know 100 million groupings of megacities and you know the 10 million 20 million you know, it just it's incredible and no one works in agriculture the revolution has worked out right agriculture works uh, so, so we have few people in agriculture, lots of people in cities. How do you do this? Ah, One, you have to have hierarchy. If you're going to have people slaving in the fields, producing food for people in cities, you have to have a system of organizing this. And it's generally not communism, by the way, or socialism, it's generally slaves overseen by people with clubs who are overseen by people with swords who are overseen by people with religious symbols. That's roughly how you <laughs> stack a hierarchy up. I'm not, it's a slight exaggeration. It's really not much of an exaggeration. This is how you do your power structure. But you cannot maintain... Because you have to think about this. You've got 95% of your population or more working under adverse conditions, let us say, to harvest food which you have to then get from them. Generally this is pre-money. So how do you get all those people who are actually growing the food, who could happily eat the food, to give you the food if you're in the city? Answer: hierarchy. Th- that you threaten them. If they do not give you the food they've harvested, then you're going to do unpleasant things to them. There's any number of ways you do this. One, you control the storage. This was the ancient world system. You would grow grain, but you want grain year-round, but you only harvest it once, twice, maybe three times if you're in a particularly productive part of the world. So people have to take their surplus grain to the city where they get little chits that say, oh yeah, you put four bags of grain in. And in an illiterate culture, by the way, the record is perfectly clear, the priests who generally did this immediately started cooking the books. Uh, because the peasants can't read, so what the hell do they know? Uh, so you just skim a little off the top, nothing changes, isn't the world great? Ah, humanity, I love humanity. Uh, so, but but th- you have to be able to force them to do that, and then you have to be able to regulate people taking the food out. And if you look at the ancient law codes and references, hiding food, stealing food, borrowing other people's cattle without returning it. This is always punishable by death and death and death and blinding and having your hands cut off and all kinds of horrible punishments, which let you know exactly what people were doing, right? This is, is, so you have to have these hierarchical structures that allow you to get people to participate in the system because if they don't participate, everybody starves. That's the key with agriculture. Everybody has to play along or everybody starves. If the farmers revolt, everybody starves because they can't store it, Chaos ensues, starvation. If the city can't get the food in, they starve. Again, the classic example is Rome at its height, somewhere between one and two million people. When they lose access to the the grain of North Africa, the population drops into about 85,000. It's just because the food systems required to feed the the city broke down because of civil chaos. They couldn't transport it, they couldn't produce it, they couldn't organize it, the hierarchy fell. Writing, we take writing for granted because we're a literate culture. This makes us very rare in world history. And writing goes along with uh, high levels of abstraction. We're absolutely used to massive levels of abstraction. Uh, The the greatest example I I came up with was the other day, I went to the bank, I've gone to the same bank for 20-some years, Uh, and I walked in and I wanted to deposit a check, I wasn't trying to take money out, I was trying to give them money, Uh, and they asked for my ID. So I have a piece of paper with all kinds of numbers on it, and I have me, and another piece of paper with all my numbers on it, and the piece of paper with the numbers counts, I don't count. No. <laughs> when I get my driver's license out and show them a picture of me, <laughs> then I count. <laughs> and then my little pieces of paper with numbers on them count. See, see how weird that is? See, for, But no, it's not weird to us because we're just used to it. Little pieces of paper with numbers on it, a picture ID is the person. You are not you, by the way. Just try this out. You are not you unless you have a picture that says you are you. That is bizarre. It really, truly is. A, we, but we're so used to it. Everybody wants your number, right? What's your student ID number? What's your social security number? Your, no, how about me? Are you telling people on the phone, no, I'm, but I'm me. I really am me. Oh, well, we need your password. Well, I I, what's, wait, I'm not a password for me. No, you're not a password for you. So someone can steal your password. They call it identity theft. Right? They just steal all your numbers. It's like, well, but what about me? Well, no, no, you don't count. <laughs> High levels of abstract, like incredible. We're used to it. This is bizarro in the ancient world. right? This is part of the agricultural revolution. Um, complex religion, um, again, probably Zoroastrianism is, is the earliest monotheistic religion. <laughs> But again, high levels of abstraction, there's an all-encompassing, unseen, unknowable force in the universe. What the hell are you talking about? I have an invisible, imaginary friend, and he tells me what to do. That doesn't sound good. Right? That, you know, but but we're good with it. No, we love this idea. There's no problem. Right? Highly complex, highly abstracted religious ideals. Um, And then along with the hierarchy, the specialization, you have people do different things. Um, We have scribal records from ancient Egypt that say, it's great to be a scribe because we're not working in the fields. They were perfectly clear on this. Great to be a scribe. Well, why didn't all the people working in the fields go, hey, I'd rather be a scribe. Ah, specialization, hierarchy. You don't get to be a scribe because you're not from the right scribal stuff. right? You're not slotted into the hierarchy the way you're supposed to be. Only us scribal type people get to be there. And we, by the way, we love hierarchy. We like to make fun of it, but we love it. And the hierarchy simply says that where you are determines who you are, not you again, your position is. So you, like if the military is of course a classic example, you have to respect an officer not because of who they are, not because she's good or smart or he's got, he's not. No, it's because they're in that position. You re- respect an abstract hierarchical location filled by any warm bodied thing. You know, and that, that's the hierarchy comes with specialization. Different people doing different things. And then once you have specialization, you have people who don't want other people to do your specialization. Because the more valuable you are, the rarer you are. So if you look at any kind of professional education in the United States, it just gets more. If it took a year to be a dentist 30 years ago, it takes five years to be a dentist today. Because people's teeth have become more complicated. (laughs) You know? It makes no sense. There's absolutely no sense except... That you want specialization creates scarcity, scarcity creates value. Value means that where you are in the hierarchy, you want to defend your position, make it harder for people to get in. So it's a great and interesting and fascinating problem. By the way, but it's been with us for since the dawn of the agricultural revolution. And finally, and most importantly probably, is heavily regulated personal behavior. To get people to play along with this, you need them to internalize, not just external, because there's too many of them, internalize personal restraint, self-control, follow the rules. How do you maintain hierarchy? If you have specialized families, you control who gets to marry whom. A lot of the ancient world is obsessed with who gets to marry whom. Indian caste system is, of course, simply the Just the sort of greatest all encompassing example, but lots of cultures have this. Oh, what kind of family can you marry into? Who's eligible? Why do you have to regulate this? Why does anybody care? Right? It makes sense to have a little marriage custom. Sure, great, everybody has them. But we have lots and lots and lots of marriage rules. One way to think about it, because we just had the whole big gay marriage revolution in the United States. Why the hell does the government have anything to do with marriage at all? <laughs> right? What, who, why is it a, the government? What the hell are you talking about? Why is this a legal government institution? Because it's been a legal government institution for 10,000 years. Doesn't need to be. There's no reason for it to be. Except for it's part of this strong regulation of personal control. Um, And my my favorite example of this is, I I want someone to write a history of Western civilization that focuses on nothing but the rules and and prescriptions on dancing. (laughs) It's an incredibly powerful force in the history of agricultural civilizations. They love, love, love to restrict your capacity to dance. We are not a dancing civilization which is weird. People like to dance. All of the evidence suggests that left to their own devices, people love to dance, in fact. We like music, we like singing, and we like dancing. In many African languages, by the way, dancing and singing are the same word. What? How would you distinguish? But for thousands of years, in America right to this day, dancing is always sort of suspect. Right, it's got this sort of yeah, veneer of nastiness. All major cities, there're a lot of laws against like you have a bar, you can't let people dance in it. New York being the worst example with the cabaret laws, but it's all over the country. Anything that involves dancing, ooh. Ah, you would, why don't we want people to dance? Right, it's just this extended example of the need to discipline the human body to control human behaviors, to keep the hierarchy in line, to keep everything working. And again, these are just really deep forces. The notion of hierarchy, we just take for granted. Well, of course you have hierarchy. It's just obviously, right? That just makes sense. Abstraction, we love it. So, these feed us on the deepest level. And I'm not necessarily opposed to any of this. It's not saying these are bad. I mean, they have weird outcomes. It's just that we're inundated with it. And then one day, roughly 1600, we decided to import some people to the United States, then the colonies, of course. And those people did not come from an agricultural civilization. They came from a civilization that had none, zero, of these Hierarchical, behavioral abstractions. They didn't have them because they weren't. They'd never developed them. By the way, these are not primitive societies. We always go, oh, we've got advanced societies and primitive societies. This is death. This is hierarchical analysis from people who had the agricultural revolution and live in the civil- civilizations that follow on from this. So if you look on the back, there's a map. Of, of the African slave trade. Um, and you'll notice it has two components. One component goes from eastern and sort of central Africa north. Now this is the incursion of Islamic civilization, particularly Arabic Islamic civilization, into central Africa, um, across the Sahara, on the east coast of Africa, uh, that began bringing slaves north. Now, the important thing, again, is Islamic civilization, once it gets established, is an agricultural civilization. You know, By the way, they've got Baghdad for a while as, as their headquarters, you know, sort of the founding uh, city of the agricultural revolution. They've got Cairo, Egypt, has agriculture for a while. Right? And so they're importing slaves from the central African region. And then you have the Atlantic slave trade, as it's called, which is along the western coast of west-central Africa that goes to the New World, to South America, Central America, the Caribbean, uh, and, and the American colonies. The key thing to note here, but, by the way, again, Africa is huge, incredibly diverse. So this is a broadish statement, but it's generally true. There are clearly exceptions. But most, the vast majority of the slaves that went north into the Islamic civilization and went west into the New World came from inside the core of Central Africa. These were tribal, small group Communal societies, they did not have grain agriculture and they didn't have large-scale herding. Because here's the thing, if you have a small communal society and you go to war with an advanced agricultural civilization, you lose every single time. For instance, you don't have hierarchy. If you don't have hierarchy, your military sucks and you get run over. You don't have population density. You don't have the advanced technology. And so it becomes a problem for you. So, what did they have? So, in this central area of Africa, it's, uh, I mean, again, it's hugely diverse in its range, but it's pr- difficult to traverse, so transportation is tricky. They tend to have sort of mixed agricultural, communal, animal raising, but the, the terrain does not support large scale uh, animal husbandry. 't the, the cereal grains didn't gr- don't grow well, they don't grow well there today. And so they you know, yams, sort of lots of gourd fruits, market gardening, what we'd call sort of like market gardening. So you have small-scale communal societies. so we're talking 100,000, 1500, maybe in an extended valley that tended to be grouped by the geographical region. So if you've got a, a, a pretty good-sized valley, all those people will form a loose coalition of one group. But then you've got to go over a steep ridge. OK, that's hard to get over. So the people in the next valley, they've got their own group. If it's a big river, well, the people on the other side of the river, yeah, they're not us. They're some other people. And they've been there for a long time. And if you look at the history of the civilizations of Africa, they have been part of many civilizations. But this really accounted to people coming in and saying, oh, we control you now. Great. Okay, now we control you. This has happened about 50 times. No one ever really had control over them because they're too sparse and, and just there wasn't enough wealth there to make it worthwhile to, to really try to conquer them. Even today, by the way, this is a notoriously chaotic part of the world because it's hard to control geographically, um, communally. But so you have these communal societies, highly developed oral culture. We're, we're a written culture. They're an oral culture. Singing and dancing, central to everything they do. Lead the, read the accounts. We have some extemporaneous accounts from the time, from the slaves themselves. who are, By the way, I say slaves. You never They're not slaves. They're people like us, who were captured and sold into slavery. We call them slaves, but they're just brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and families and wives and husbands and you know, with dreams and gardens and houses, and then they get picked up and taken away. So, so, you know, we call them slaves, but that's their status. It wasn't who they were. They were just us kidnapped, right? So it's important to keep that in mind. We use the word slave, but it's kind of, you see how that's kind of a bit misleading? Uh, So keep in mind they were just us, uh, but kidnapped. So they're communal societies. They don't have a lot of hierarchy, and they don't have a lot of specialization because they don't have the density to do this, and it's not impersonal, because they basically know everybody. A stranger is a rarity. And so what they emphasize in these sorts of societies, and it's very strong in this West African tradition, is individual excellence, because you are known who you are as a person. The quality of you as a single human being is well known. And so people who are excellent at whatever, wonderfully kind, incredibly good at growing guavas, really good at wrestling, amazing singer, great dancer, spectacular drummer, everybody knows. So your value is not abstract. Your value is concrete and it lives in yourself. Completely different kind of outlook on the world on every level. Um, so if you think just abstraction, we'll start there, because uh, I think it's a great example. The famous, most famous syllogism, this is Aristotle's breakthrough, is uh, just simple abstract logic. Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Nothing could be clearer. This is the foundation of all reasoning and logic and theory. In practice, is, these experiments have been run, by the way, if you go to a, a, one of these West African communal societies in 1600 and say, hey, I've got this concept for you. Socrates is a man. They'll be, great, we've never met him. What kind of man is he? And they're like, oh, well, it doesn't matter what kind of man he is. Oh, no, it very much matters. <laughs> we're very, no, we want to know. If we're going to tell us something about we want to know what kind of person this Socrates guy was. I'm like Well, no, for our example, it, doesn't, it could be any man. Well, I don't know any man. What do you mean it could be any man? What, 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 what does that even mean? Tell me about this Socrates guy. And they like, well, okay, it doesn't matter. Okay, well, maybe we can move along. Okay, all men are mortal. What do you mean by mortal? Everyone dies. Well, I'm alive. Are you threatening me? like Well, no, no, but everybody you know has died. No, there's all these people around here. Well, no, but everybody, you know a lot of people, die. I know people have died, but not everybody's died. Look at all the people. But look, everybody is going to eventually, why do you say terrible things like this? <laughs> you're sure you're not threatening me. <laughs> well, but if every, if Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then Socrates is mortal and is going to die. It's like, ah, I'd really like to ask Socrates about that. <laughs> Because I'm not sure. I think, what would Socrates say? right? Would, would he? Cause let's talk to him. Well, you can't talk to him. He's dead. Well, if he's dead, is he a man? See, there's no part of the syllogistic logic that they're going to buy. Zero. They just aren't going to go for it. By the way, this is why Aristotle is a breakthrough in the history of philosophy. Because when he was saying this stuff, people were like, yeah, I don't know. By the way, Socrates is not necessarily a fan of Aristotelian logic. Of course, Socrates died earlier, but Aristotle is arguing against the kind of platonic reasoning that was in the Socratic dialogues of of Plato. We forget this. We think, oh, well, they were all reasoning this way. No, no, no. But we're so used to these abstract reasoning things, we think, oh, that must be the way you think. But if you're going to tell me something about Socrates, they're going to, well, let's talk to Socrates. That's the best way to know something about Socrates. Well, no, let's just say all men. Well, I don't know all men, so I don't want to know. I can't, you can't, it's just an abstraction. There's no such thing as all men. So even just the most basic, they just don't view the world this way. So you have this group. And what we did, or what the Western civilization did, we didn't do it, they did it in the 1600s through the 1800s, is they transplanted a large group of these people into the middle of a different civilization. So now you have two civilizations living side by side that have sort of 8,000 years of divergent development. This is sort of Martians and Venetians, or I don't know, whatever. people. For, this is just crazy cultural distance. Way far apart. Not a little bit far apart, hugely, massively far apart. So, um, also strangely, the numbers here are, are, are fantastic. About 12 million African slaves were brought to the New World. This is an astounding number. It's important to remember that when we look at Africa today, particularly Central Africa, they go, oh, what a train wreck it is. All these problems. Yes, they have problems. Well, they've always been like this. Or it's post-colonial. No. The origins of the problem go back to the slave trade. This is the origin. Before both from the north, the Islamic slave trade, and from the west, the European slave trade, kicks off, They had low-level, minor levels of slavery, like much of the ancient world, I think, pretty much all the ancient world. But then slaves became this incredibly valuable economy. And if you're in a small-scale markety garden-type communal environment, the people in the neighboring village just became worth a million dollars each. And so they started this endemic raiding, it's just kidnapping. Most of the slavery is not huge groups of men invading and conquering an area and taking everybody out. That did happen occasionally, by the way. Much of it is just the people in the neighboring valley found out you can get money, which, by the way, a relatively new introduction, by just kidnapping a few people. A couple of kids out by the lake fishing. You can grab them and sell them for money. Think of how corrosive this would be to your culture. And this didn't happen for 10 years or 5 years. Six, this is for hundreds of years. And it grew and it grew and it grew because the civilizations that want the slaves are expanding. And the region that's producing the slaves is not expanding. So it was this incredibly disruptive force that just annihilated a lot of the cultural uh, values and powers that had held these communities together for millennia. So when people talk about post-colonialism, yes, problems there, et cetera, et cetera, but it really goes much further back to this incredibly aggressive sort of harvesting of people out of this region that that damaged probably irrevocably the existing culture in that area. Um, So 12 million to the New World, maybe half as many, it's hard to get the numbers exactly right, went north to the Islamic civilization, but lots. Of those 12 million... Only, although only is weird in this context, but it's seen only about 300, maybe 400,000 are brought to the United States or the colonies in the entire history of the slave trade. Almost none are imported to the United States because we had no big use for them um, until cotton. By the time cotton comes around, the slave trade is shifted and then it's interdicted. So most of the slaves and the African-American population was born here locally from the families that were here in the 1600s. So the African-American community in the United States has been here longer than pretty much anybody else. Italians and the Irish are coming between 1850 and 1900. At that point, the African-American forefathers have been here for 300 years. So this is not like some late edition or a bunch of them were brought in in the 80s. No, these people, this is the generation after generation, born and raised in the colonies since the 16s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It's, it's ext- they go all the way back. They were there. The found- they're the founding, founding peoples. We don't think of it that way, but they're there. And so we have this extraordinary, like I said, just crazy situation we have these two divergent cultures now living together in one relatively small space. But they don't intermix. It's a key thing to understand about racism. Often this has happened in history, and what happens is the people just merge. Over time, they begin to accumulate other people's values, they intermarry, they live in each other's neighborhoods, they move around, and after a century or two, Nobody remembers what the hell is going on. Ah, We remember. We haven't forgotten. We're incredibly, legally, of course, right up until the civil rights movement, uh, legally segregated. And today, if you look at the demographics, we're still totally and completely segregated. I mean, it is impressive. In fact, one of the things that's happening finally that's changing our values, the transvaluation of all values, is the advent of of miscegenation it's picking up at an incredible rate. This is starting. This this long, multi-century segregation is actually beginning to break down, and it's freaking people out. By the way, it's, you may have noticed this <laughs> in your culture, <laughs> uh, in our society. This is starting to freak people out because they can see that this is happening. Four hundred years later, it's starting to happen. But so weirdly, we have this unique situation that societies that should have merged did not. They've been living sort of parallel to each other for centuries. And what this has meant is this West African cultural heritage that by all rights should have died out and been absorbed into the greater agrarian world of our civilization, of Europe, has not. It's still here. It's with us. It lives with us. And that's why I say, can West Africa save us? Because if you look at the cultural values that we have that are creating problems for us today, I think the West African solutions look pretty damn good. And that's what I want to talk about now, but you have to understand that this is what's been going on. That the values that we've inherited from an agricultural civilization are stupid today. We don't need them. They've become non-functional, in fact, actively damaging. And yet we keep going with them because, again, they're so deeply rooted. And if you want to look to someplace where you could find new values, it turns out that we've hit the historical cultural jackpot of all time, because we the the civilization brought the answer with it by the way this is one thing that makes america so astounding so a couple of ways to ponder this it's hard to get our minds around this because we're not well, this is not what we're told right we know our civilization is the great so the west european interest it, it's got a lot of great stuff i'm obviously hugely in favor of it ah but it's got some problems those problems are becoming more glaring let's abstract it let's make a friendlier example great contributions of america in the 20th century to the world particularly if we think artistically how about rock and roll where's that come from this is from the west african musical tradition translated into the new world and passed around jazz right hip hop r&b gospel blues are probably our two greatest classical composers well, I guess three: George and Ira Gershwin, one or two, uh, and Aaron Copland, both hugely influenced by jazz. I mean, they studied the classics; they knew Ravel and Foire and studied with the, with them. But they knew the jazz. This is what made them. This is what sets them apart. It's a totally different insight. But where does that come from? It comes from this tension between this West African musical rhythmic tradition encountering this other civilization. And it keeps throwing up musical forms, artistic forms, that are so powerful that they take over the whole world. This is is essentially unheard of. To do it once is astounding. To do it every 10, 15 years for a century is ridiculous. But it's also challenging. So a couple of things to think about here. Uh, by the way, this, it, it, everybody knows, right, R, blues, R&B, goes to England, gets transmogrified into rock and roll, and comes back, <laughs> right? You know, this is why all the, the weirdly, all the great rock and roll bands are from, all of them, but many of them come from England. Elvis Presley, right? And people go, oh, well, they're, they're stealing the culture. Uh, they're, well, yes and no. I would say the better term of art here is that they're bridging the culture. You can't take it straight. It's too far away. It's too alien and foreign to hear it pure for most people. But a bunch of young people on the radio, Bob Dylan, in England on records, they heard the R&B guys, they heard the old blues guys, and they went, this is blowing our minds. I know what I want to do with my life. I want that is what I want to do with my life. And so they took this core that most people couldn't hear outside of the African-American community, made it something that they could deal with, and then they expressed it. They translated it. And people went, holy shit, rock and roll music. We like that. And then, of course, there's a blues revival. Because once you've learned to hear rock and roll, now you can hear the blues. Jazz, the same thing. There's a beautiful quote from Aaron Copland. I swear I'm not making this up. It's so perfect for for my thesis that it seems like I'm lying. But I'm not lying. I could be lying, but I swear it's true. Uh, (laughs) You look it up. But he says... Um, So, he he, Eric Copeland's from the United States. He actually played jazz as a young man. So he knew jazz, had heard jazz, had played jazz. And then he was in Austria. And he heard a jazz band in Austria, and it blew his mind. And he said, I'd never heard jazz before. I heard it in Austria. Because it had to be in a context that he could absorb it, that he could really hear it. And to hear it isolated in Austria, bizarrely enough, was allowed him to go, ah, jazz, here it is. This is, this is what I've been looking for. This is what's going to transform my music. It did transform his music. I mean, he, did, he took from a lot of things, not just jazz, by the way, but jazz was a central influence on him. And hence he becomes Aaron Copeland. George and Ira Gershwin, clearly. And this happens over and over again. That because we're living in parallel with, right next door, this phenomenal culture, but a different culture. And it's a culture that communicates to us in a way that addresses some of the problems that we're facing. Like I said, if you just go back and go, hierarchy. running out of time. They just gave me the time signal. But uh, I want to say, let's give you one more example, because again, two parts. We're going to keep going on this. Um, We live in a society of hierarchy. To be in a society of hierarchy means you have to devalue individual excellence. We have no use, give or take, for individual excellence, because it throws things off. Because hierarchy is not, built. it's okay if people who are in hierarchy are good at their jobs or doing what they're supposed to, but it's not necessary. And if you're too good, it's disturbing. It makes life hard for other people. So there's always this tension, this fight in hierarchy. And the more hierarchy you have, the less, just simply sort of a sliding scale, of space for individual expression and individual excellence. What about a community? Just imagine your mind, just imagine your mind. If you have a community that values individual excellence above roles and hierarchy, where might you think those kinds of people would express themselves successfully in our culture? Every field. every field that is open to stars. excellence, stars. Look at any field that actually, truly desperately values excellence above all things, which is rare, by the way. Tom Peters a sort of administrative guru guy has written lots of books, says he's been to all these companies. He says he's only been to three companies that try to hire the best people of the hundreds that he's been to. He says no one else is trying to do this. Because if you're a manager and you hire somebody who's better than you, you think they're going to take your job. <laughs> So you have to be in a system that rewards you for hiring people who are better than you. And he says, almost no corporate structures have that. You are penalized because you look bad. How about athletics? How about the entertainment industry? Music. Any place where somebody can excel based on individual excellence African Americans are overrepresented, and people go, "Oh, they're genetically gifted at athletics." This is, I mean, please—we're not over this stupidity yet. Um, it is not that they're from a culture that values individual performance very highly, and so they seek out opportunities where they can shine. If they're athletically gifted, they seek out athletics. If they're musically gifted, they seek out music. If they're really good at something like chess, then they seek out chess. Before they let African-Americans play chess, they said, oh, they can't play chess. Once they let African-Americans play competitive chess, they're like, holy shit. <laughs> it's a system that rewards excellence, and all of the sudden, what do you get? All these African-American grandmasters, like that. It took like 10 minutes. It was an extraordinarily fast, and people are like, well, maybe a couple of gen- whoa, Here they are. Wow, that was amazing. So that's what we're going to explore in part two. I know that seems like a lot, but but in part two I want to talk about how these values encounter ours, what kind of tensions those throw up, craziness, and why I think in a lot of ways they're precisely the values that we need to help us make this transition of values that's happening anyway. (laughs) And, and, And last note, basically I think If you were going to kidnap a bunch of people to make your Western civilization better, West Africa is absolutely the place to go. It's the best possible thing. I mean, it's just the greatest idea in history. I mean, horrible slave trade, all that. But hey, it happened, and that is a win. I'm telling you, this is the greatest thing ever. So next time, part two of Can West Africa Save Us? Thank you. (laughs)